Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, my guest is Martha McKenzie. She is the Global Humanitarian Advocacy Lead at UNICEF, the world-renowned child uh, hunger and relief organization. She's based here in New York. She's a Brit by birth. She's previously even the president of the Oxford Student Union. I'm so happy to welcome today Martha McKenzie to The Caring Economy. Hi, Toby. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to the chat. Martha, you, I'm sure you are busier than ever with all that's going on in the world. And I know that it's not all doom and gloom. And we'll delve into that today. But first, as with all of our guests, I'd love you to give us sort of maybe a five-minute sort of synopsis of Martha McKenzie and how she got where she got. Yes, I'm very happy to. Um, so as you said, I currently work for UNICEF, which is the UN Children's Agency, and we are active in around 190 countries worldwide, essentially providing relief, care, support to children and their families. And I've been working for UNICEF for about two years now. So I moved to New York in 2019. And before that, I worked at Save the Children, uh, which is also a global international children's organization um, headquartered in the UK. So when I was based there, I led our government relations, um, so really prioritised influencing the UK government on child rights at home in the UK, but also internationally, um, and really spent a lot of time influencing how UK aid was spent and how the UK government kind of prioritised uh, humanitarian spending and humanitarian action. And really the way that I got into this, um, my, my first real job out of university uh, was, as you said, it was president of the Oxford University Student Union. And I always knew that I wanted to do something political and something that involved kind of mobilizing people, mobilizing people in power uh, to do right by um, others. And I think that I really got into that through my work with the student union and I very much enjoyed working right across the student body and influencing the university to provide better care, better support for students and generally um, just kind of do, do a better job for the student body. And I was thinking, well, how can I do a career that really allows me to get into this space full time? And I initially started out doing some community organizing and working at a very, very local level in terms of working with um, migrant communities and others around rights-based campaigning in their local area. And then through that ended up working for Shelter, which is a housing and homelessness charity in the UK. And Shelter was really where I got my grounding in, um, Shelter was really where I got my grounding in how you use uh, campaigning to influence national politics and how you influence decision makers and really place a rights-based agenda at the heart of politics and power. And that's kind of how I got into this line of work. And I think I did that domestically for a number of years and then really was itching to do something more international and a bit more global. Um, and that's how I ended up at Save the Children and I've gone from there to the UN. So that's a very roundabout discussion of how I got there. Thank you, Martha. I, I'm intrigued that you say you've always wanted to go into a sort of a political career, because when I think of UNICEF, I think more of uh, charitable philanthropy, social impact, but clearly politics are critical. So um, how does the that humanitarian and that sort of charitable aspect factor into your your thinking about your work? Well, I would say I, I think it's politics with a small P and I feel very strongly that if we're really gonna deliver long-term sustainable change, yes, organizations like UNICEF are absolutely critical in terms of the relief that we provide, 
and in the aftermath of an emergency or in a development situation, being able to go in and make sure children have access to the nutrition that they need, the health services that they need, that we can make sure they have access to safe water, that they're protected from harm. All of that is absolutely vital. And, you know, the UN does that all around the world and it's badly, badly needed, particularly, as you said in the introduction right now. But I do believe that if we're really to deliver kind of long-term, global, sustainable change, we have to influence governments too. And we have to influence governments to prioritise spending on children, to prioritise child rights, to prioritise communities that are underserved. And really, again, in the same kind of language that I used around the student reunion, really do right by the people that they're responsible for. So that's where I see, and, and the advocacy component of my job is, is really critical. And that's where I see it as being very political in that, yes, we go in and provide the leap relief, and we fundraise and the generous donations of the public and the generous donations of business and philanthropies are absolutely vital towards that work. But at the same time, we also need to influence how governments spend their own money and the policies that they enact to really ensure that that's sustainable change. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a it's a wonderful concept of leverage as well, right? The, politi the political um, tools really can give one much more clout or sway in moving minds, money, what have you. I, I think so. And, and and both when I worked at Shelter and when I worked at Save the Children, both of those organizations when they were founded, and I was at Shelter for its 50th birthday and Save the Children for its centenary. So they both have a kind of long, rich history. And they were founded on the basis of providing relief, but also campaigning. So Shelter was established because there was a homeless and housing, homelessness and housing crisis in the UK and we desperately needed to respond to that, but also it had a campaigning arm there at its heart, again, to influence government policy. And Shelter's ethos was always, we want to campaign ourselves out of existence. We don't want to exist because we think that housing is a right, it's a human right, and we think that everyone everywhere should have access to a home. And that shouldn't be us to provide relief, that should be a kind of well-functioning state that can provide that housing. And I think Save the Children was set up in a very similar way. Eglantine Jeb, amazing woman, she founded Save the Children, absolutely remarkable humanitarian, was also the architect of the Convention on the Child Rights. And she, again, set up Save the Children. She saw uh, post-World War One the blockade of, of former non-allied forces was kind of decimating communities and, and leading to a famine. So she was raising money to support that and make sure that children who were starving essentially had access to, to food and medicine. But she also thought that the policies of the government of starving these children were outrageous. You know, so she was arrested in Trafalgar Square campaigning against the blockade. And I think for me, that's such an important part of, of why I do the work that I do, that sense of it's never enough to just provide the relief. We have to protect rights, campaign for better, and make sure that underserved communities, that the governments and the people in power do right by them. Mm -hmm. well, I, I share that uh, view. And I also think that as with social justice, th these, are, these are movements, there's not a point of arrival, right? It's, we have to stay vigilant and continue to educate and engage because things evolve and people can forget or people can grow lazy. And so it is an ongoing um, effort. I, I wonder when you had that spark in you as a young person, I don't know, young girl or young woman where you, you know, something about the political aspect caught your attention. Was it a person, a, a, an event or what made you say, hmm, this is interesting. There's something in this for me. I think I can probably pinpoint um... I can pinpoint several factors. I think one is I was raised as a Catholic 
and in my faith and certainly the, the way that my parents uh, practiced Catholicism there was always this sense of it is your duty uh, to basically love thy neighbor and do right by them and I would go to church every Sunday and church was always raising money for CAFOD and sermons would always preach about if you're in a privileged position to do something for other people that's your right that's your responsibility and I think I kind of very much um, internalized that from a very young age so I would say that even though I'm no longer a practicing Catholic that sense of the faith that I was raised in was very much ingrained in you campaign you do your bit you support others mm -hmm. I think relatedly my, my mom again when I was growing up she was a, a counsellor she was a party counsellor in the UK and so she was by nature very political and we had political talk in the household and from a very young age that sense of politics being a force for good and something you do if you want to achieve change was very much intertwined in in my upbringing and, and how I was raised and I think then when I went to kind of secondary school or high school and again onto university, just very much kind of lent into that a little bit more and, and spotted the opportunities to give the political speech or run for election or be part of my student body um, just because I had that kind of strong, strong sense that that's what you did and that was the way that you achieved change. And I would say that, you know, the, the era that I was growing up, it, it was... And I think it's been it's been quite difficult for a lot of people of my generation that maybe when we were in our teens, it was uniquely hopeful and make poverty history was 2005 and I was 15 then and I remember this sense of maybe we can make poverty history and I went on the march in Edinburgh and really kind of grew up in this era where things we felt could get better and we did have a responsibility to do something about the world at large and to not just live in our own bubble and I would say that actually maybe the the kind of the 2010s have been a constant test of that faith mm. actually exactly to your point that you said earlier Toby it's not linear it's never linear and we have to be vigilant and and change is really really hard won and hard fought um and I think that some of the turbulent times we're going through at the moment really proves that uh well said Mark. could you maybe give our audience a sense of your space UNICEF and the other relief agencies out there and what does an average listener need to know about that landscape? Where to give their mind share, their money, their volunteer hours? How does one, how does one approach that complex marketplace, so to speak? I think it is such a good question and, and not one that has an easy answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yes, it is a crowded space, but there are a lot of organizations in that space doing really fabulous work. And I think the main message I would say is that there are even kind of the smallest action can make a difference. So actually even going along to the Global Citizen Concert or tuning in on Saturday and, and texting to donate or texting to take an action, those small things, they do make a difference because they all help kind of shift the balance in favor of people who want a world for the good and a world for the better. And I think we live in quite um, pessimistic times where a lot of people would have us believe that you know, people are only out for themselves and change isn't possible. And I think particularly the younger generation, that's just not true. Actually, the vast majority of people, they do believe in a better world. They can be part of that and every action or every kind of small move in that direction helps tip the balance and tip the scales in that way. And I think the landscape writ large, like, I think it's very important to do your research if you do want to donate and really understand what an organization is doing and how they're spending their money. I think in the development space, you know, and humanitarian UNICEF is quite unique because we are a UN agency. And um, so we raise money from the public as well. We raise money through um, 
basically oversees aid from governments and business, but we exist sort of through the UN and have a mandate to protect child rights and advocate for children in the, the 190 countries plus that we're present. But there are lots of NGOs doing similar and excellent work as well. And I think that the UN and kind of charities and campaigning organizations exist as part of the same ecosphere and complement one another. And you have a unique mandate being there as a UN agency, but you also have a unique responsibility to maintain a level of impartiality and balance that kind of keeps you in the country and keeps you there advocating for child rights. Whereas I think sometimes an NGO or a charity can be more outspoken, more targeted in their approach, more campaigning. But I think the two have to exist hand in hand. Um, and, and it does make this up this ecosphere that ultimately through applying pressure on governments to do better, through providing direct relief, through working together, can slowly but surely try and make things a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Martha. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we have Martha McKenzie. She's with UNICEF. She is their global humanitarian advocacy lead. Martha, um, tell us what that means. Like, What keeps you up at night? What are you doing at 9 a.m. on a Monday versus 5 p.m. on a Saturday? What does a global advocacy lead do at such a world-renowned organization as UNICEF? And don't be modest. Well, I'm going to try and not be very jargonistic because I've definitely been indoctrinated into the UN world and I find myself saying sentences that people who exist out of it going, huh? <laughs> uh, so please call me out if I go down that route. But my... My role at UNICEF is we have lots of colleagues who are working in our country offices around the world and in our regional offices around the world and then in specific kind of um, policy teams here, here in New York and other kind of regional hubs doing incredible humanitarian advocacy work. And my role is essentially twofold. One it is to think about how do we use UNICEF's really considerable communications um, heft how are we using all of those channels that we have, the kind of media voice that we have to really pursue um, progress on child rights and emergencies. So if there's a specific conflict, what's our strategy at the global level to really raise the urgency of what's happening to children in Afghanistan or what's happening to children in Lebanon and their communities and how are we leveraging that kind of global communications weight behind practical change for children? And then the second area is knowing that there are so many crises happening at any one time and, and so many different conflicts that UNICEF is, is trying to protect children through. If we think about our resources, how are we using them most effectively at the global level? So really setting strategy around what we're prioritizing. And so I think an example there would be using all of our um, global channels to really apply pressure on governments and everybody with some responsibility to protect child rights in conflict. So this year was the 25th anniversary of uh, Gresham Michelle, who was a UN envoy, wrote an incredibly powerful report 25 years ago, looking at the impact of armed conflict on children and essentially surfaced six grave violations that were carried out against children in conflict. And, and people kind of knew instinctively that obviously war is bad for children, but there wasn't this sense of like, the UN has a special duty to protect children from these egregious violations of their rights that are often meted out in conflict de deliberately. 
And this was kind of a seminal report that established a whole agenda at the UN Security Council around this issue. And so one of the things that, that I might do and work with colleagues on is really kind of use advocacy at the global level, advocacy at the country level, and then global communications to shine a spotlight on children's experiences in conflict, to surface solutions for how we can better protect them, and then to hold those um, in power to account for how they treat children and the actions that they kind of carry out either at a global level where they have influence or in conflict. So to, to give some context, I wonder if, if there might be two or three examples of who you at UNICEF would consider your big fish that you would want to have always in your camp supporting you, whether it's financially or other. For example, is it the US government writ large? Is it the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Is it, uh, like who are your, your, and I don't mean this in the way it sounds, but sort of the VIP um, that you advocate, you try to engage with most importantly? Well, I, I am going to give a bit of a politician's answer to this, which is, is basically everybody that you've said, because I think, again, it's going back to that UN mandate. And as a UN agency, um, we yeah. operate in every country in the world and, and we have this kind of impartiality. But I, I think that there is certainly a sense of we will work and want to work very closely with um, countries that are big aid donors. The US government is, of course, one. There are many, the, the G20, the OECD countries, anyone who is pledging large sums of money to international development or humanitarian crises are absolutely uh, governments that we want to be kind of working closely with, making sure that that money is spent well, making sure that it's being invested in children and their future, and really making sure that child rights are at the heart of that spending strategy. That would be absolutely vital. But then I think foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are absolutely crucial partners for UNICEF. We work exceptionally closely with the Gates Foundation. We work very closely with the Lego Foundation, with SIF, to name but a few. Yeah. And these partnerships, again, one of the things I think or, or UNICEF's kind of unique value is that we're very clear on what we're trying to do, and that is protect and preserve child rights. And we, and we are present in 190 countries worldwide and we, we work with children in their communities directly. So we have this unique insight into what children in their communities need. It's extremely contextualized, it's extremely localized. And then we have the kind of global supply and global weight to really kind of make a significant substantive difference in some of these core areas. And so being able to work with anybody that wants to make a difference in this space is absolutely vital to what we do. And, and, and really the way that USF positions its work is that there are several key issues, but child health and child nutrition is absolutely vital. Child protection and making sure that we're keeping children safe from harm. Uh, education, absolutely vital. Climate change, humanitarian crises, as I've already said, protecting children in conflict and child mental health, to name but a few, are some of those really core issues that, that UNICEF has the power to make a difference on and would collaborate with any organization active in that space. Yeah, you've also done, I mean, from the start, I think you've done an amazing job of engaging your ambassadors. I think you were probably one of the first international organizations to even have such a concept. I think Audrey Hepburn was probably one of your first, right? A, a Belgian war survivor. Um, and film star, of course. Uh, are are they? I, I ask you an awkward question, put you on the spot, and I'll get a political answer. But help our our listeners understand: Are they? Do they cut both ways? Are they great for you? But are they? Is there a lot of maintenance with the celebrity ambassadors, or is each one quite different? Or 
put it a different way. What should one know about engaging celebrity ambassadors for their organizations? Well, I would say, I mean, I'm lucky and fortunate enough to work alongside our brilliant Goodwill Ambassadors team who do amazing work uh, with our Goodwill Ambassadors. But I actually think one of the things that's really important to know is that often when a Goodwill Ambassador gets involved with UNICEF, they want to do that because they really care about the issues and they really feel like they have something unique to add. And in most cases they do. And I think it's very important for an organization like UNICEF and anybody engaging a Goodwill Ambassador to make sure that we're treating our Goodwill Ambassadors in that way. And that we're not kind of just instrumentalizing them as celebrities, but we're giving them the space to kind of make that substantive contribution and to use the connections that they have and the influence they have, be it at a national level where they come from or at a global level where they can really activate a fan base to deliver real and substantive progress and I think that that is why they get involved in this and actually many of the Goodwill Ambassadors we work with like when you drill down into their backgrounds they've set up foundations because they care so much about these issues they do have access at the political level they've gone and they've seen the work in the field and they really want to talk meaningfully and substantively about it and it's how we work with them to give them the space to do that alongside kind of multiple other commitments that, that they might be focused on. So I promise not to ask any digging questions about any of your ambassadors, but can you just give our listeners a sense of who's on your team, some of the names they would know? Yes, I mean, we work very closely with David Beckham, and he's done some brilliant stuff with us recently on vaccines and building vaccine confidence. Priyanka Chopra is an absolutely brilliant ambassador. Uh, we work with Mazoon, who was a former Syrian refugee, absolutely fantastic young woman, really, really pushing education for us globally. Millie Bobby Brown, one of the youngest uh, Goodwill ambassadors. Again, she talks so openly and so powerfully about mental health. So these are these are just four, and, and the issue span is is absolutely massive, and the reach that they have to kind of galvanise interest and engagement in these issues is is quite incredible. Terrific. Uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, today on The Caring Economy, we have Martha McKenzie with us. She's at UNICEF. She is the global humanitarian advocacy lead there. Um, Martha, if, if our, our listeners want to get involved or uh, follow you, uh, what's the best way on social to, to know either UNICEF or you? I would say uh, just type is such basic advice, but stick UNICEF into your Google search bar, wherever you're listening in the world, your local UNICEF uh, office will come up and that'll give you options to donate, to volunteer, to get involved, um, but certainly do give our global channels a follow. I'm pretty sure on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter, they're all just at UNICEF and you'll see that they're absolutely amazing. Their reach is incredible. They, they talk about all the issues that we work on with such clarity and, and use really engaging content to bring it to life. And I think if you follow those channels, you'll not really be in doubt about what UNICEF is focusing on at any given time. Terrific. And I would imagine that's prudent as well, because then you'll get it in the local language as well. Exactly. Yeah. God bless you. That's a lot of languages, 190 countries you're working well, with. Yes, but I think this is actually, you know, you tap on an important point. Um, we obviously have uh, our offices do do their own uh, social media work, but we are at a global level really investing in languages because it's just the most critical way to reach people that we have to move beyond English and, and having these really active uh, language channels is, is really, really important. And it has, is absolutely paying off in terms of people's access and engagement with UNICEF. So that, again, that's one of the real benefits of being in, at the UN is really investing in languages so that you can reach as many people as possible. Yeah, and I would think just technology as well. I, I'm hoping that in this country, we could move toward more of a cashless society. So with philanthropy and charity, it's a little bit easier to 
process um, donations and with cash and checks. Um, but tell me on that topic, what in your tenure, um, let's say at least the past two years, if not longer, what have been some of the evolutionary uh, movements you've seen? For example, are tech folks giving more or is tech playing a bigger role in your work or are there some governments that are really stepping up now because of either strife in their own countries or their diaspora that are elsewhere that want to help out? Yeah, I mean, it's a really great question. I, I think, you know, some of the trends that we're seeing right across the piece is, I think we continue to see a lot of investment in humanitarian crises and when there's emergencies, uh, but the kind of general public generosity is astonishing every single time and how much people want to give and want to be part of the solution. I think that sense of continuing to make the case for longer term development spending and, and being able to tell a positive story about, yes, there is a great deal of need, um, but we promise you that the donations that you make do make a difference. That's becoming a new challenge. And I think responding to the fact that communication is so uh, democratized these days, right? You, you, it's a wonderful thing. But certainly if one of your jobs is kind of controlling communication or sharing comms in a certain way, we don't have that control anymore. So you have to really allow people to make up their own minds about what they think is important to them, what they think is happening overseas and where they can play a positive role and then come in and, and influence and convince that UNICEF is the right place and that it's right that we exist and that this money really can make a difference. So I think it's that sense of the point at which we influence, the point at which we share stories is, is certainly very different. But it, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating landscape at the moment and we're seeing more and more countries move more into that middle income, higher income status and they're thinking about how do we use our aid money? How do we kind of join the aid donors club? We want to be part of that. We're also seeing kind of long-term donors starting to think about whether they want to give less or questioning whether they've been giving too much historically. So I think we are starting to see some slight shifts, certainly in the kind of public financing space or the government financing space, that I think we're still in that kind of tectonic moment where those, those plates are shifting. But in the next couple of years, we might start to see a kind of slight realignment. And I think certainly one of the, the big trends that's coming out of the pandemic as well is, is much more investment in, in health and in health security. And I, I think some, something that's been quite interesting for a long time, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation do some fantastic work just in terms of understanding public attitudes to what they think about aid spending. And certainly in the UK, long before the pandemic, one of the most compelling arguments or one of the most kind of issues that people were most seized about was a sense of, well, if we don't invest in strengthening health systems overseas, or we don't invest in kind of combating disease overseas, it will be on our shores. And that's certainly been proven correct that actually none of these solutions, the way that we are as a world now, we can't just have national solutions, we need to have global solutions. And so I think greater investment in pandemic preparedness, in sharing information, in health system strengthening, in access to vaccines is going to absolutely have to be uh, one of the critical shifts of, of all of this and, and we saw that a bit this week with the UN General Assembly and the, the vaccines and, and health summit called by the Biden administration just that sense of we desperately need collective action otherwise we're not going to solve this. Mm -hmm. I know in my own work with the British consulate the COVAX uh, were a part of it the British government and you know trying to get vaccines to the southern tier and, and globally uh, we have to make the world better elsewhere if we want to keep things sane here. Nationalism doesn't really keep pandemics from coming to your doorstep. It certainly does not, no. And and that is that has become very apparent. And I think 
if there's one thing that can can come out of the, the kind of chaos and the devastation of the last two years, it, it has to be that, that we truly are all in this together. Mm -hmm. um, and we absolutely need to be investing in overseas because nothing is national anymore, as you say. Yeah. Martha, I'm going to uh, contradict myself from a moment ago when I talk about cashless societies. I do have very fond memories. I'm aging myself as a young man going out trick-or-treating and having our little UNICEF boxes where we would get our candies, but we would also ask for some coins for our little box for, um, for less advantaged kids around the world. Do you still have that or is that? We do still have that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I find it fascinating because I grew up in the UK um, had no idea about trick-or-treat UNICEF until I moved to America. So I moved to New York in 2019 and then joined UNICEF. And every single um, American that I've met and made friends with since I've been here, as soon as I said what I do, they said, trick-or-treat for UNICEF. <laughs> so I've got some sense of just kind of how seismic it is in, in the US and how much it's part of the zeitgeist. And But right. yes, we, we do still have it. It's still absolutely critical. And my colleagues who, who work at the US Fund uh, will be gearing up for it this year. Yeah, I think there's probably a digital version to be had with TikTok. I'm sure. I don't know what. I'll leave that with you. Um, so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to thank our guest, Martha McKenzie, for joining us today. She is, as we said earlier, the, uh, the global humanitarian advocacy lead for UNICEF here in New York. Um, one last question, actually. Uh, well, I'll let you have the final word, but I just wonder, how does one relax with such a heady job? <laughs> Can you ever really turn it off or, or not emote, perhaps? It, it is difficult and it, it's a question that we get asked a lot and you know it's by no means as difficult as uh, colleagues who are actually in the field and I've been in, in kind of quite regular contact with amazing UNICEF colleagues who are in Afghanistan, stayed behind in Kabul, working night and day during the latest crisis and I'm just astounded by the work that they're doing and, and the fact that they literally cannot ever switch off. And I think it is actually really important in these jobs to talk openly about mental health, um, because particularly when you're bombarded day in, day out with just the kind of scale of crises around the world and focusing on, on child rights and everything that happens in the news is relevant to your work, it can be very, very difficult to switch off. So I think taking the time to see friends is the big one for me, just kind of get out have a conversation maybe that isn't about work, breathe a sigh of relief at the end of a long week and, and make that space to just connect on a human level is just so important to, to find some time to decompress. And do you have any exercise you do? Yoga, meditation, walking, running? I'm, I am a bit of an exerciser. Yes, I do. I, I like a bit of cycling, certainly a bit of yoga and a bit of weightlifting as well. I think that one thing I've definitely noticed as, as things have got a bit tougher this year is that doing something daily is is one of the things that keeps me keeps me sane. Absolutely. I've been I'm, I'm with you on that. I've since high school really just been involved in sports or exercise every day. And if I don't get that in, then it really does set me back. So yeah, agreed. Uh, Martha McKenzie, thank you again. Any final thoughts for for our listeners about you, UNICEF, purpose driven lives and careers? No, I would say, I mean, thank you so much for having me on and apologies for the background noise. It's very hard to escape the noise of Manhattan. Um, but I, I think you maybe that adds a flavor to it, who, who knows? And I think I think it's great that the caring economy exists and actually, you know, pursuing a purpose-driven life, it can be tough at times because it's so all-consuming, but it's so enriching and rewarding. And I hope that your listeners will see kind of in all of the, the podcasts that they do, how many options there are out there to really bake purpose into your day-to-day. -day. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you, Martha. Come back soon. Oh, I'd love to.